How's everybody doing tonight? Good? We're going to be continuing on in the book of Exodus, but before we get too far, uh, uh, my wife Kathy's going to come up and share a little bit. She, this last week, uh, had an opportunity to go to um, Calvary Chapel's Pastor's Wives Conference, and uh, she had some things that uh, uh, the Lord laid on her heart to, to share with us, give us a little update on how that conference went and, and what the Lord did in and through her at that time. So she's going to share.
All right. Thanks, babe, for sharing. Well, let's pray. We'll get started. Uh, Book of Exodus, chapter 20. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for all the work that you're doing and how you continue to reveal yourself to us through your word, Father. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you would guide and lead us during this time. 
We pray, Father, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart willing to receive and understand and make application. For, Lord, it was you who said, You search the Scriptures daily, for in them you find life. But it is these that speak of me. Lord, we pray you would show us yourself as we pour ourselves through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, Exodus chapter 20, we find ourselves as we're going through, you remember that we went through the Ten Commandments last time. Uh, We went through each one and and shared a little bit about each one. And the important thing that, that we really want to grasp when we consider the Ten Commandments is this. Failure of the Ten Commandments always, always, always starts in the heart. Each one of those Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, folks, is God's law. God spoke it. The law of Moses is what we'll begin to study from uh, the end of chapter 20 on as he breaks down all those specific 613 commandments that God's going to give the nation of Israel. That's the law of Moses, the law of God. Ten commandments spoken by the Lord, spoken to the people. Each one of those things is an absolute that God still expects us to desire to obey. Uh, Obviously, every one of us is going to fail the Ten Commandments. We know that. The Scripture tells us, right? The Ten Commandments is a mirror to show us that we need a Savior. And we have fulfilled the Ten Commandments in Jesus Christ. We have a relationship in Him. We are bathed in His righteousness. And through Him, we fulfill it. We complete it. Because we have His righteousness overshadowing us. I'm reminded, and we're going to get to it as we continue in our study. But folks, I want you to understand... The Ten Commandments were placed in the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was a box made of wood. Wood speaks of humanity, covered in gold. Gold speaks of deity. What are we talking about in that box? The the God-man, the man-God, Jesus Christ. It's a picture of Him, that box. And in that box goes all the failures of the children of Israel. The Ten Commandments. How long did it take them to break it? Moses don't even get down the hill. So it don't take very long. They break the Ten Commandments. What else did they put in that box? They put in Aaron's rod that budded. What did that speak of? The children of Israel's rebellion against God's anointed. Their rebellion against his anointed. That failure goes inside. A bowl of manna. What did that speak of? God gave them a simple thing. Hey, gather manna every morning. Don't try to keep it. Don't try to save it. Don't gather it on the seventh day. What did they do? They tried to gather. They tried to hoard it. They did everything he said don't do. They did. That failure goes in that box. The Ark of the Covenant is the box. But the part that goes on top, that was made out of hammered gold. Hammered, all hammered, beaten. Why? Because that's how Jesus Christ was beaten. What do we call the top? The mercy seat. Scripture declares to us, Jesus Christ is the mercy seat. And on the mercy seat went the blood. So when God would look down at the failures of his people, they were in Christ, covered by Christ, in the blood of the sacrifice, even in the beginning. And that's the way it is for us. We're in Christ Jesus. We're in him, covered by his mercy, shielded by his blood, covered in his righteousness. And we see that all beginning 
for us as we look here in the book of Exodus, as we consider these Ten Commandments. So we look at verse 18, beginning in, in chapter 20, verse 18, look what it says. Now all the people witnessed the thunder and the lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. The people are freaking out, right? I mean, wouldn't we? You're standing before a mountain, you know, roughly 7,000 feet tall, all burning, smoke-covered, thunder, lightning, and the voice of God speaking Ten Commandments down to you? I'd be a little shook up, be a little shook up looking at that scene, the almighty presence of God. So the people trembled and stood afar off. And then they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear, but let, let not God speak with us lest we die. The people stand back, but we're going to see Moses go forward. And each one of us gets to make the same choice. We can stand back from God or we can move forward. We can step up. We can move forward instead of like the people saying, "Uh, you know what? This is too much for me and I don't really want to hear it. So Moses, I'll hear it from you. You tell me, but I don't want to hear it from God. That's the choice the people made. The rest of the commandments, Moses will receive himself. The rest of God's plan for the children of Israel, Moses will receive himself. Because the children of Israel said, we can't bear it. Now before we get too hard on them, remember in the Gospel of John, Jesus said to his own disciples, I have many things to tell you, but what? You cannot yet bear them. That's the same place they were. We can't bear it. This is more than we can bear. This is more than we can handle. This is more than we're prepared to receive. Well, that's fine. Where where was the Lord in all that? He, He was above and beyond all things. God will always be loving. Always. He didn't rebuke his disciples because they weren't ready. He said, I have more things to tell you, but you're not ready yet. When you're ready, I'll tell you. And when they were ready, at the day of Pentecost, didn't the Lord reveal more of his plan? And throughout the ministry of the apostles, didn't he continue to reveal his plan to them? For God's people, God is always patient and following those precepts that Paul wrote for us in the book of Ephesians that were to speak the truth, but how? Speak the truth in love. What is it that the Lord laid out for us when we consider the working of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit? We have the gifts... And we have love. What did he say? Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, what? It's a clanging symbol. It's a bunch of racket. If I can have faith that I can say to that mountain, be removed and cast into the sea. But if I don't have love, it profits me nothing. It's got to be all wrapped in love. The only time we see Jesus being other then lovely to the people was not when he was dealing with sinners. It was when he was dealing with Pharisees. When he was dealing with Pharisees, we got a problem, fellas. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Whitewashed tombs full of what? Dead men's bones. You pretend to be good on the outside, but inside, there's a problem. God wants to reveal himself to his people. He wants to reveal himself to you, each one of us. But God is going to be eternally patient and long-suffering, and he will wait. 
The only thing that holds us back from moving forward with the Lord is our desire, like the children of Israel, to go up the mountain. How close do you want to get? How close to the Lord do you want to stand? How much of his, his spirit do you want working and moving inside of you? How much do you want to surrender to him? That's all on us. Somebody explained to me once, it's like uh, those old boats. I don't even know what they call those boats, but they race on the ocean, the big ones, and they got two pilots in them. One steers and one works the gas. Sometimes when I picture my, my walk with the Lord, I picture it like that. He's, he's the one steering, but I got my hand on the gas. And when I'm afraid, I take my hand off. And we're just putting around. But God's fine. He's just steering us where we need to go. But when I want, I can really stomp down on that and, and move forward with the Lord. Move forward with him. It's all that desire. This is what's going on with the people, folks. They're, they're not able to take it. So Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to you to test you that, you, uh, that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. And when we think about the fear of the Lord, folks, important that you understand the word does not mean to be terrified. It's not the concept that we have of fear. This fear is a desire not to let down our Heavenly Father, our desire not to disappoint God. That's the beginning of wisdom. Think about it. The proverb says, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but what? The fear of man is a snare. When all we're trying to do is please man, what happens? You just run yourself ragged. And you can't please all the people all the time. Can't even please some of the people some of the time. Right? But we want to please the Lord. That's the fear of God and what he's talking about. Hey, God's doing this. He's proving you. He's, he's, he wants you to realize he wants a relationship with you. But the people wouldn't, wouldn't hear it. So the people stood afar off, verse 21, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. He goes into that storm. He goes into that smoke and the fire and, the, and the, all that stuff because folks, Moses had already seen the Lord, hadn't he? Moses already seen the Lord at the burning bush. Was that bush consumed? No, bush wasn't consumed, it was burning. Was this, was this mountain consumed? No, the mountain wasn't consumed. Moses wanted more of the Lord, more and more of him. So he's continuing to move forward. God, give me more. Give me more of you. More of what you have for me. Direct me, guide me, lead me, show me that hunger and that thirst. For Jesus said, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will be filled. And so Moses desires to draw near. Well, look what happens. The Lord said to Moses, Thus you will say to the children of Israel, You have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make anything to be with me, gods of silver or gods of gold. You shall not make for yourselves. An altar of earth you shall make for me. Hey, he hadn't even finished all the commandments and he's already making an altar. Why? Because they're going to fail. And he has to make for them that, that implement of getting back right with God. So he says, okay, here's the Ten Commandments. Now let's make an altar. Because y'all are going to mess up. So here's what we need. We need to be prepared for what's going to happen. God's not wanting to push people out. 
He's wanting to bring people in, but they must know there's only one righteousness that God will receive. There's only one. The scripture declares only the righteousness which is of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's why Jesus said, I'm the only way, the only truth, the only life. All men that come to the Father will come through him. We must be in Christ Jesus. And so he says, a altar of earth. This is interesting, folks. An altar of earth you shall make, and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep, your oxen, and every place where I record my name. I will come to you, and I will bless you. Build an altar. You know, when we do a study in the scriptures, we discover when we look at the life of Abraham, man, Abraham was a man of altars. Wherever he went, he built an altar. Whenever he was thinking about what to do next, he would go sacrifice on the altar and seek the Lord. God, what do you want from me? Where, is this where I go? Is that where I go? What's happening? He was a man of altars, constantly building those. Listen, God is saying, you need an altar wherever I record my name. Wherever you go with me, where was God with the children of Israel? Hovering right over him, wasn't he? The Shekinah glory, the Kabod, the glory of God over the top, the pillar of fire. Even the 40 years wandering in the wilderness, there was God with them. And he's going to lay out for them a sacrificial system so that they can be right with him. Though it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to remove sin, it was all painting a picture Building a model for the Lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world. That innocence must die so that the guilty can go free. And that's what he's declaring in this sacrifice. But it's to be earthen. It's not to be made out of gold. Not to be made out of silver. It's not to be all fancy. Why? Because your focus should never be the altar. Your focus should be the sacrifice. Because that's Jesus. Folks, whatever we do, whatever we do, may it always be that we desire to point to Him. Whatever we are doing, if we're, if we're worshiping and it becomes about Fritz, me, and Joni, and whoever's up there sharing with us in, in worship, if it becomes about us, we have failed. It's Jesus we're supposed to be invisible, shadow box puppets, man. You can't see me. You're supposed to see him. You're supposed to see the Lord. And whatever we do, and whatever we are, it's not the altar that's important. It's the sacrifice. The sacrifice is what's supposed to be important. And he says in, in verse 25, You make for me an altar of stone. You shall not build it of hewn stone. What's that mean? You're not to take the stone and cut it. If you build one out of stone, you just pick one up out the, out the desert and you pile it up. You pile it up. Why? Because if you touch it, you're going to ruin it. Look what God says. For if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. If you use a tool on it, forget about it. It's not supposed to be ornate. It's not supposed to be the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. Think about all those churches in Europe that people go on tours to see. They are gorgeous beautiful you go to saint anne's cathedral in jerusalem incredible place you walk inside and it's and it's just a marvel people group after group after group going in there just to sing now they say they go to sing because the acoustics are so good what they really mean is the acoustics are horrible 
So all you can do is sing. Because if you try to talk, it echoes everywhere. Boom, boom, bouncing off. Because everything's made of stone. But there's not one church service in it. It's all beautiful and pretty on the outside. And people want to go see the building. But there's no life in it. Because the focus isn't on Jesus. The focus is on something else. The focus is supposed to be Him. The focus is to be Christ. It needs to be Him. The focus is the sacrifice. Nor shall you go up by steps to my altar so that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. They're not supposed to elevate. You elevate a man, he's going he's gonna to blow it. You should never be elevated. You shouldn't elevate everything. You shouldn't walk up on steps. The higher you get, the further you're going to fall. Stay down. Stay humble. Stay humble. That's what he's talking about. Then nothing will humble you like, you know, folks seeing your underbritches when they ain't supposed to. Huh. Whoops. I heard a story about Fritz about that one time. I'd mess it up if I tried to tell it. Maybe somebody will share it. But Fritz apparently had his uh, nakedness shown in a, in a way that he wasn't planning on. Now, nothing will say humility like that. Oh, Lord, have mercy. What a nightmare, huh? So, so this, is, this, is what the Lord, this is what the Lord is laying out. This is what God wants of us. Humility. That's why he says, don't... Wouldn't it be just like us? Oh, we'll make this altar all plain. But let's put it up on a pedestal. And let's go up this big set of stairs up there so everyone can see me. That's not what they're supposed to see. What are they supposed to see? The sacrifice, the Lord. It's about him, not us. Anything we're able to do, it wasn't us that was able to do it anyway. It was a gift given to us by God. He needs to be glorified in all that we do. And he goes on now in, in chapter 21. He's still talking to Moses. The people are going to recoil back off. We're going to see him talking to, uh, to the Lord for oh, close to 40 days. And, uh, and up on the mountain, he's gone up there to be in his presence. And the people are, are back down below getting in trouble. But right now we're going to focus on what the Lord lays out for him. Now, from this point forward, we're talking about the law of Moses. The law of Moses. You're going to see that distinction as we continue to go through Scripture. At times, they'll talk about the law of God. When they say that, talking about the Ten Commandments. At other times, they're going to talk about the law of Moses. At that time, they're talking about those 613 commandments that the Lord's going to lay out for the governing of his people. What we're going to look at here is the civil law, the, the civil cases that the Lord lays out for him. And you need to understand when we look at the scripture, all of these laws, we're going to look at them and think they're harsh. But what you want to realize is at that time, in that society, what, what people were doing, these are mild. Because God was giving them a, a, what we call progressive revelation of restraint. What does progressive revelation mean? That God reveals himself to us a little bit at a time, right? I want to tell you more, but you can't handle it yet. So he waits for man to grow, man to develop, reveal a little more, reveal a little more. Daniel, when, Daniel, when we finish the book of Daniel, what did the Lord say to Daniel? Daniel, don't worry about this. It's for the end times. You're not ready for this yet. But when we come to the end times, knowledge will be increased and they'll understand. But for you, 
Don't worry about it. That's progressive revelation. The same way in his law. Progressive revelation. You and I, we, we can, you can go online and look at all the goopy laws we still have on the books. You know what I mean? There's all kinds of, of crazy, goofy laws that are still on the books, still sitting in there from, from way back when. But we have grown beyond that point at this time. This law was given for the children of Israel for this time to govern them. And it was part of the covenant that God made with his people to go through. So let's take a look. Chapter 21, verse 1. Now these are the judgments which you shall set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he will go out free and pay nothing. Hebrew slaves. The first thing he talks about is the rights of a slave. Very first thing God begins with in in this civil law. The right of a slave. What's he say? He cannot serve more than six years. He can't. If you have a slave in the seventh year, he goes free, period. So if you got in debt, how would you end up a slave? Well, you'd get in debt and you couldn't get out. So you'd sell yourself as a slave. Perhaps your father and mother would be in debt and they would sell their children as slaves. What's the point? That selling would get them out of debt and then those children or that man or that woman could not serve as a servant, more than six years. The seventh year, they were free. Unless they chose to be a slave for life. Now he goes on, he says, Now if he comes in by himself, he will go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife will go out with him. So if you come in together, you go out together. You come in by yourself, you go out by yourself. All right, scripture goes on. If his master has given him a wife and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children belong to the master and he goes out by himself. You come in as a slave and you decide one of the other slave girls there, part of the master's uh, servants, you fall in love, you are wed, you have children. They all belong to the master. They're not yours. They don't belong to you. So you get to make a choice. At the end of six years, you go out free. Or you choose to stay. Scripture will go on and explain it to you. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master must bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door, the doorpost, and his master will pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. There's a name for that. Dulos, bond slave. Every one of the letters in the epistles, when Paul would begin his letter, what would he say? I am a dulos of who? Christ. I love my master. And I'm never leaving. So he would pierce, be pierced for it. Remember we talked about when we look at the scripture, what are we looking for? Patterns, pictures. That's the Hebrew mindset, right? Well, consider Psalm 40 with me. Why don't you turn with me just over to Psalm chapter 40. Psalm 40, verse 6. 
says, Now sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened. What's the psalmist talking about? We just read it, right? If you wanted to be a slave by choice forever, what did you do? You had your ears opened at the doorpost. When we came to the Exodus, you remember when we came to Passover, where did they put the blood? On the doorposts, on the lentil. On the doorposts and on the lentil. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened. Who's he talking about? Burn offering and sin offering you did not require. Verse 7, then I said, behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. Who's talking? That's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who made the choice to come. What did Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 say? Folks, just flip over there real quick. Philippians chapter 2. Remember, Gentiles eat pork chops. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Makes it easy. I learned that in Sunday school. I still do it. Chapter 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who in the very form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and taking the form of what? A bondservant. Dulos. A slave forever by choice. Psalm 46 tells us about it. Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 8, lay that out for us. We see the picture first painted in Exodus. The very first beginning where God starts as he lays out the civil law, talking about a slave and a bond slave and what they're to do. Who was he envisioning while he's going through that? He's envisioning his son, the picture of Jesus Christ. It says now, and if a man sells his daughter, verse 7, to be a female slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has betrothed her to himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. What's he talking about? Listen, if a guy bought a wife for himself, he's bought himself a wife, she's come in, but he's not happy with her. He must let her be redeemed, bought back, brought back. The Lord always, in everything that he had, no matter what situation you found yourself in, there was always a way back. There was always a way to be redeemed. So that we would know today, there was always a way for them, there is always a way for us. There is always a way for us to go to the Lord, to draw near unto him. And that's what he's laying out for. She can be redeemed, let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to foreign people since he has dealt deceitfully with her. She can't be resold. She can't be just thrown away or cast off. And if he has betrothed her to his son, he shall deal with her according to the custom of daughters. He must treat her as his daughter. So she would have all the rights of a daughter. The Lord cares. In those days, folks, back then, women were property. They had no rights whatsoever. Now, God's not going to, in his progressive revelation, tell them everything that's wrong. He's going to set in his law, hey, you can't do this. It's not okay. It's not all right. 
Those are my kids too. And so he lays that out in his civil law or in the law of Moses. He goes on. If he takes another wife, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, and her marriage rights. What does that mean? The first wife. In the sanctity of the marriage, God's concern was with the first wife. Now, God never wanted the people to multiply wives, but they did. So in the civil law, he put forth their rights so that they would not abuse the rights where they were going. Why? Because we're dealing with progressive revelation. God's dealing with the people where the people are at. You and I, when we got saved, are we still the same we were then? No way. And if we're still the same as we were last year, we are doing something wrong. Because we need to constantly be moving forward with the Lord. If we're not moving forward, we're falling behind. Constantly moving forward with the Lord. So, he talks about the rights of the first wife. That she is supposed to retain everything that she was given in the marriage. He takes another wife. That's his problem. She needs to be taken care of. And if he does not do these three for her then she shall go out free without paying money. If he doesn't follow through, she is free. If he doesn't take care of her, she's free woman. She's free to, to walk away, to be out. She's not enslaved. He, she was a bought wife, right? So because she was purchased, but he's not treating her right, you're free. Go home. Forget this fella. God says you're free. You're free to move forward. God always has a way of bringing his people through, redeeming his people. Verse 12, he who strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. Blood for blood. Capital punishment was instituted in the book of Genesis way back. And it has never been repealed. Blood for blood. If life is lost, then life is taken. That's what the Lord laid out. That's what God desires. That's his plan. So if a man is in a fight and he kills someone, blood for blood. However, if he did not lie in wait, but God delivered him to his hand, then I will appoint for you a place where he may flee. What's that mean? There was a problem. There's an issue. It was not something where he's premeditated murder. He's not talking about premeditated murder. He's talking about manslaughter. You know, I, I didn't really mean to. We had this thing happen, and I, and I killed this guy. Then the Lord said, I will give you a place to flee. It's called a city of refuge. They're written for us in the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 35. Cities of refuge where they could run and flee and be safe from the avenger of blood. It was sanctuary. You know, like you watch the old movies, and guys would run into the church, and they would yell, sanctuary, sanctuary, and they would be protected as long as they were in the church. Well, that's the same way here. If it was not premeditated, if it was accidental, he could go to a city of refuge and be safe there as long as the high priest lived. As long as that high priest lived, he was able to be safe in that place. Scripture goes on then, he says, But if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor to kill him by treachery, you can take him from my altar that he might die. If he's holding on to the horns of the altar, now the altar hasn't even been built yet, but that altar is going to be in the tabernacle. That altar speaks of that place where, where we find the forgiveness of sins, like the cross. 
But he's saying, hey, there is consequences for our actions. You can peel him off of the altar, blood for blood. If he premeditates, commits murder, then this is what should take place. This is what should happen. Now, verse 16, he who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he is found in his hand, he will surely be put to death. He who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. Now, that concept curses doesn't just mean to curse at him. It means to invoke the covenantal name of God against his parents. It's an act of extreme dishonor. What did God say? Honor your mother and father. Honor your mother and father. But to invoke the very name of God in a curse, he says they should be put to death. Whomever it is. This is not just a child. Whoever. If men contend with each other and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist and he does not die but is confined to his bed. If he rises again and walks about outside with his staff, then he who struck him will be acquitted. He shall only pay for the loss of time and shall provide for him to be thoroughly healed. He's supposed to pay for time loss and medical expenses. The Lord is laying out this civil law for his people. This is how you, my people, are going to be governed. This is how things are going to roll. And it's pretty intricate, isn't it? I mean, he's trying to cover everything he can think of. Everything he can think of, the Lord is laying out for them. He's laying out for them and providing this guidance and this his rules, his law, they are good. It says now, if, if a man beats his male or female servant with a rod so that he dies under his hand, he will surely be punished. Now this is not to be, it's to be a rod of correction, not a rod of brutality. And if a man beats his slave and kills him, he, he beat his slave and killed him, he's, he's going to be held for what he has done. Notwithstanding though, if he remains alive a day or two, he shall not be punished, for he is his property. Why? Because it shows intent. I was using the rod of correction. I hurt him. I, didn't, I wasn't trying to kill him. And that's shown. If I was trying to kill him, he'd have died in the beating. So it's that concept of showing intent. He's got to take care of him. He's got to take care of his, his wounded and hurt servant. But listen to this. Well, he's going to build on this concept in a moment. If men fight and hurt a woman with child... So that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm, uh, but no harm follows. She shall surely be punished according to the woman's husband imposes on him. And he shall pay as the judges determine. So if there's a fight, pregnant woman's by, she prematurely goes into labor, has a, has a child, as long as the child's okay and everything's all right, then he will pay what the husband says. And what the judges will determine. Now if any harm follows. Then you shall give life for life. And then we have the lex talionis. Life for life. Eye for an eye. Tooth for a tooth. Hand for a hand. Foot for foot. Burn for burn. Wound for wound. Stripe for stripe. Now we look at that and we think. We, we tend to see it as harsh. But let's think about how things work. In fact, let's take our children. Because they're such great examples of this. When all three of my boys were together under one roof, J.C. would decide he wanted to mess with Cole. So he'd go over to Cole. 
while Cole's sitting there, and he'd, bam, smack him on the back of the head, and then laugh about it. That's what older brothers do. <laughs> so Cole, he wouldn't get up and smack him on the back of the head. He'd grab a knife, a gun, a bat, and he'd start chasing his brother through the house. If he got to his brother, as long as it wasn't with the gun or the knife, and he laid a beating on his brother, his brother then would go after him. What do we have? Everything is escalating. Right? We see that over and over again. Oh, you took my eye? I'm going to knock your block off. I'm going to take both of your eyes, your head, your neck, your arms. The Lord says, no. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Everything should be even, level. It's not about getting ahead, going past. It's just about what's just. That's what the Lex Telianus is talking about. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Not going beyond, over and above, which so often is man's way. Over and above. No, the Lord says it should be even. Now we're going to get back to striking of the servant. Look, if a man strikes the eye of his male or female servant and destroys it, he will let him go free for the sake of his eye. If he knocks out a tooth for his male or female servant, he will let him go free for the sake of his tooth. If you beat your slave and you injured him, he was free. You had him for a day. He irritated you. You used the rod of correction, knocked out his tooth. Well, he was officially a slave for one day. He gets to go free for the sake of his tooth. See, God was never in it about the brutality. Now, he didn't try to, because we're dealing with progressive revelation, it's not that God's saying there must be slaves. He's saying there are slaves. I need to, I need to give you law and how you treat them. What are you doing with your slaves? How are you treating them? What's the plan? You can't keep them forever. You've got to let them go after six years. You can't just beat them. If you beat them and you injure them, they go free. It's interesting because our country used the Bible to justify slavery for years, but they never did it like the Bible said. They, they said, well, there's slavery in the Bible, so I can have as many slaves as I want. They didn't bother to read that you could only have them for six years. They didn't bother to read that you had to let them go free. They didn't owe you anything for anything. They didn't bother to read that if you injured them, they would go free. They didn't bother to apply all that stuff. They just want to apply what works. Isn't that how some people's Christianity is? Well, I'll take a little of this and a little of that. Put God in this little box that works for me, and that's what we'll call it. This is my Christianity. But the reality is, folks, as we look at this law and we look at what God's Word says, we need to understand progressive revelation. What was God's final word? God's final word. Where's God taking the people finally? What's His point? Where's He guiding? Where's He leading? Where's He going? Well, He goes on. Verse 28, if an ox gores a man or a woman to death and the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox will be acquitted. The animal had to be destroyed and no profit gained. The animal's destroyed, but you're not selling the meat. The animal's destroyed, period. There's not going to be gain. It's not going to be anything gained, but the owner, he's not responsible unless... But if the ox tended to thrust with its horn in times past, and it had been known to the owner, and he had not kept it confined so that it killed a man or a woman, the ox will be stoned, and its owner will be put to death too. You are responsible for your animal, God said. Now, if you don't know 
and your animal goes out and you weren't aware, fine. Then the animal's put down and you can't profit. But if you were made aware and that animal caused injury, you are responsible and the animal. This is like 3,600 years ago. The Lord laying out His law. I think we could learn a thing or two from it. Because our laws aren't so great. He goes on, If there is imposed on him a sum of money, then he shall pay it to redeem his life, whatever is imposed on him. Remember what I told you? No matter where you find yourself, God will give you a way of redemption. So if this guy, he's supposed to die, his ox killed somebody, but that family says, you pay this sum of money and you can buy back your life, he pays that money, he's redeemed. He makes payment, he makes restitution, and he can be free. He can be redeemed. Now he goes on. Now, whether it is gored a son or a daughter, according to this judgment it shall be done to him. We look at that and we think, what? Folks, remember what I told you? Women didn't have that value at that time. No value. God said, it doesn't matter man or woman. It doesn't matter. It's the same. God was the first one to say that. Back in that society, nobody was saying that. But God was saying, what does he tell us in the New Testament? There's neither man, woman, slave, free, Jew, Gentile, barbarian, Scythian. He says, we're all one where? All one in Christ Jesus. We're all one in him. Everyone has the same value. It was God's word that taught that. It was God's word that laid that out. And he here, way back in Exodus, is telling them the same thing. Now look at this. If an ox gores a male or female servant, he shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox will be stoned. Interesting, huh? Remember I told you all Hebrew scripture is picture, pattern, painting. God is saying, my son came as a servant, and you paid for him 30 pieces of silver. If an ox kills a servant, that's the price. 30 pieces of silver. Remember, Jesus Christ was crucified when? From the foundation of the world. God knew everything that was going to take place in his son, and he shows us that picture. What was the price paid for the son of God? The price of a servant gored by an ox. So many pictures. What was Jesus hanging on the cross? What was he? Pierced. His hands and his feet. What about his side? Gored by a spear. The price paid to betray him? 30 pieces of silver. So we see the picture as we go through the scripture. Well, he goes on. If a man opens a pit... Or if a man digs a pit and doesn't cover it and an ox or a donkey falls in, the owner of the pit shall make it good. He shall give money to the owner, but the dead animal shall be his. So what's going to happen? You get the dead animal, your problem, get him out, your problem, get the meat, whatever you're going to do with him. But you're going to pay the the fella who lost his animal because you didn't cover your pit. If one man's ox hurts another so that it dies, then it shall sell the live ox and divide the money from it and the dead ox they shall also divide. So you're going to take one man's stuff, the one who lost an ox, the one who has an ox. You're going to divide everything. You're going to sell the one and you're going to divide the, the meat from the other. And everybody walks away. That's what God says is just. This is right. 
This is what God is laying out for them. Or, if it is known that the ox tended to thrust in the past, and its owner has not kept it confined, he shall surely pay ox for ox, and the dead animal will be his own. So he'll pay the price, but he can have the meat from the ox that has died, and he'll give his ox to the man who lost an ox. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it and sells it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. Remember Zacchaeus, the wee little man? Wee little man was he. He climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And when Jesus saw him, he said, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to go to your house. And when Jesus had supped with him and spent the day with him, what was it Zacchaeus said? Man, I'm going to give half of my money to the poor. And if I've stolen anyone, stolen anything from anyone, I will pay it back fourfold. It's right here. If you steal... You gave back four times for a sheep, five times for an ox. If you stole, you made restitution. That kind of worked, wouldn't it? Because listen how it would work. Okay, I'm a poor fellow, and I went and I stole your sheep. And I took your sheep, but I got caught with the sheep. Now i got to pay five sheep. I don't have any sheep. Well, now you're a slave. Now you're a slave for six years working off your debt to be able to pay the the restitution that's required. But see, it wasn't lost as a slave forever. You'd spend six years. At the end of six years, you would go free. The person who was stolen from would have restitution for what you had done, and hopefully you have seen the rod of correction correct the fool so that he doesn't come back. Now, you go to jail today. How many of them fellows been there before? And before, and before. And a few other times. My brother works in a prison in Arizona. He's been a prison guard for, I don't even know, forever. And uh, he knows them all. And every time they leave, he tells them, I'll see you later. Because he knows they're coming back. They all, some of them don't even stay out a day before they're back. Okay? So uh, the, the way we do things, does it work? It don't work. It ain't working. Why? Well, when I get caught stealing, you put me in jail, you feed me three meals, you give me a cot, you keep me warm, you take care of me, I'm good to go, you let me loose, I don't have anything, I go back to what I know, I steal again and I come back. God had a plan of of understanding, of restitution. They make restitution. Verse 2, if a thief is found breaking in and he is struck so that he dies, there is no guilt for his bloodshed. I wish they'd tell that to California. Because that ain't how it works there. A fella broke into a house, got shot. Here's where he made the mistake. I don't even know if I can say this. Here's where he made the mistake. He only injured him. If he'd have killed him, he'd have probably been okay. But he injured him. So what did the guy do? The thief who broke into his house sued. One, the guy had to sell his house to pay for the thief who broke into his house and got shot. Well, that's the way our country works. That's the way it rolls. God, I think he's got the idea. Hey, if a fella breaks in and gets shot, hey. You know? Pay attention. If the sun is risen on him, okay? If the sun is risen on him, there shall be guilt for his bloodshed. He should make full restitution. If he has nothing... Then he shall be sold for his theft. 
Now, here's what, the Lord, here's what the Lord's saying. With added illumination comes added responsibility. If the sun comes up and you can see him, now you're going to be responsible. You can't just shoot this guy. If you can look at this guy and, and make a judgment on, on what he's all about and what's going on, he'll make restitution, he'll be arrested, and he'll make full restitution. If he can, he'll be sold as a slave. You're going to get what you deserve anyway. But with added illumination comes responsibility. The more light that dawns in your life, the more responsible you are. That's what God's laying out. Pattern, right? The more the light of Jesus Christ shines in your life, the more responsibility you have to walk in the light. And that's what the Lord's laying out for us here. If the theft is certainly found, or if the, yeah, if the theft is certainly found alive in his hand, whether an ox, donkey, or sheep, he will restore double. That's if you find him stealing it and he's still on your property. If you find him stealing it and he's off your property, it's four times. But if he's still on your property when you catch him, it's double. You get him with double. He's got his hand on your stuff. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed and lets loose his animal and it feeds on another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best of his own field and the best of his own vineyard. So if your animal got loose and grazed in a neighbor's pasture, got into his crops, you were to give the best that you had to the neighbor who had lost whatever he lost from the animal who had grazed in there. This was God's plan. If a fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that stacked grain and standing grain or the field is consumed, he who kindled the fire will make surely make restitution. If a man delivers to his neighbor money or articles to keep and it is stolen out of the man's house, if the thief is found, he'll pay double. Look at verse 8. If the thief is not found, the master of the house shall be brought to the judges to see whether he has put his hands in his neighbor's goods. So if you took your stuff to a friend to watch and then you went away and then somebody broke into your friend's house and stole your stuff, they say, well, if he caught the thief, he pays double. But if not... You're going to bring your friend in and make sure it wasn't him who put his hand into your stuff. And look what happens. He's, he's going to lay out for him that if your friend comes before the judges, if he says, I didn't do it to the judges, then he didn't do it and you're supposed to let it go. That's what God said. We're going to see it as we continue through his law. That's God's plan. Hey. We're going to take someone at their word until we know that their word isn't worth a nickel. But until then, if they give their word before the judges, then that was enough. That was it. And you were square. He goes on and says, now, for, for any kind of trespass, whether it concerns ox or donkey, a sheep, clothing, or any kind of lost thing which another claims to be his, the cause of both parties shall come before the judges. And whomever the judges condemn will pay double to his neighbor. If a man delivers to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any animal to keep, and it dies, is hurt or driven away, no one seeing it, then an oath of the Lord shall be between them both, that he has not put his hand into his neighbor's goods, and the owner of it shall accept that, and he shall not make it good. If he says it, they're, they're square. Man's word was to be accepted. Unless proven otherwise. But if in fact it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to the owner for it. If it is torn to pieces by a beast, 
Then he shall bring it as evidence, and he shall not make good what was torn. Now if a man borrows anything from his neighbor, and it becomes injured or dies, the owner of it not being with it, he shall surely make it good. But if the owner was with it, he will not make it good. If it was hired, it came for its hire. If a man entices a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall surely pay the bride price for her to be his wife. If the father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money according to the bride price of virgins. This is what he's laying out. If a man took a woman who was a virgin, not yet married, and, he, and by trickery or deceit caused her to lie with him, he was responsible for her for life. He paid the bride price. He paid her dowry. Her dowry was what she would be able to live on if she didn't have a husband anymore. If her husband left her or didn't take care of her. The Lord's saying, look, if you sleep with a woman, she's yours. As far as I'm concerned, she's yours for life. She's your responsibility. This is what God was laying out in his perfect law. Today in our country or in our world... That's not exactly how it is, huh? It's just just another thing. It's no big deal. It's just, you know, just another day. Another day in the life. He says if the father refuses to give him to her, he still has to pay. He will still pay her bride price. Now in those days, unlike today, she was done. Chances of her ever finding a husband that would take her after that were pretty slim. So she was to be cared for. God cared. He cared about what happened to her, and he wanted to make sure that every man understood the responsibility. The responsibility that he took as he went to lie with that woman. As we look at this, keep in mind, Prior to giving us all of these statues, what's the first thing that the Lord gave? The altar. Why? Because he knows we're going to mess them all up. We're going to tweak them and push them, and and we're going to do everything we can, this side of glory, to ruin every good thing that God's ever given. That's what man does. What does God do? He does everything to turn it into gold. Jesus said of his coming as Messiah, I have come to give you beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. What does Jesus mean? I can redeem all this stuff. But what do all these laws show us? They show us unquestioningly that our heart is deceitful and wicked and we are sinners and we are hopelessly lost and fall hopelessly short of being able to reach to the hands of a perfect and just God. It should teach us that we don't want to yell too loud for justice. We want mercy. Remember what we talked about with the Ark of the Covenant? Where is all the failure? Under the mercy seat. Who's the mercy seat? Jesus Christ. What covers the mercy seat? His blood. 
so that when God looks down on our failures, He sees the blood of His Son. And we can be right. All the law we're reading, it's good. There's nothing wrong with it. It's good. It's perfect. It's just. It's right. But what is the law's job for us? It's a tutor, a schoolmaster to show us like a mirror. Man, we fall short. But that mirror can't do nothing to make us clean. No matter how dirty my face is, I can rub it all over the mirror. All I'm going to do is get the mirror dirty. No, we're clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for this time we can come and we can see, we can begin to, to see the pattern, Lord Jesus, that you lay out in your law. Father God, that your law is perfect. That your law is exactly what you, Almighty God, required. And the point behind it all is to show us as man that we fall short and that we need something to make us clean. You told us there's an altar, so there's a sacrifice. Somewhere, somehow, there's a sacrifice that makes us right. In the book of Hebrews, you tell us it was your son who was sacrificed for us once for all. And we are made clean in Christ Jesus. Thank you for your son, Lord. And I pray, God, as we study this law, we would begin to realize not the sin of our brother or our neighbor, but that we would see our own heart and realize before an all-powerful, all-knowing, perfect, and holy God, it doesn't matter if I stand in the deepest valley in the Grand Canyon or on the peak of the tallest mountain in the world. I cannot touch the sun. We all fall short. We all need you. So, Father, may we, rather than judge a brother, put an arm around him and help him stand, recognizing ourselves, for there but by the grace of God go we. So, Lord, we ask, shower us in your grace and in your mercy. Equip us to love our brother, to love those whom we reach out to. Give us a spirit of love that we might use the gifts and the talents that you've given us in a spirit of love. Don't make us afraid to speak the truth. But make sure that we speak the truth in the love of Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. And we give you all the praise and the glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen.